Welcome to Splatbook, the RPG Topics podcast. If this is your first episode, we talk about tabletop RPG design. <laughs> this show is brought to you by the generous contributions of the lovely backers of the MapTro Patreon. Head on over to patreon.com slash MapTro and pledge today to support the show and gain access to the exclusive MapTro secret sketchbook. My name is Kyle and with me today is my favorite bard king in disguise, John Curry. How you doing today, buddy? Well, if it's in Kyle, old Latino. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. I'm doing uh, pretty good. What are we talking about today, John? <laughs> well, after that, I've forgotten. Uh, last week, we um, discussed reading two stories by Lord Dunsany. Is it Dunsany or Dunsany? I don't know. I have it. heard it uh, Dunsany uh, from Dunsany. several sources, okay. so we're, that's what we're going to go with. And the two stories were The Queen's Tears, or is it Tears of the Queen or The Queen's Tears? It is, I think it's actually The Quest of the Queen's Tears. The Quest of the Queen's Tears, and then The Fortress Unvanquishable, save for Seknoth, um, yes. which is his other slightly longer story. So, uh, but And there before... are links to these stories in the show notes, so if you want to stop, read the stories, and then come back, um, they're freely available on the internet, so we will post links to those. Uh, yes, but before we get into all of that good stuff, John, you had some you had some uh, 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 niggling thoughts from our last conversation about yeah. uh, Dark Muse and Kyle, Carl Edward Wagner. So please. yeah, niggling thoughts is an understatement. So so the, the only reason that Carl Edward Wagner didn't make it onto like my personal appendix end when we did the big episode where we listed our stuff is that we we're really trying to sort of get away from. Like the 1970s, 80s people that dominate that Appendix N list. Um, I think in some editions, he might even be on it. Like I think in the, there's yeah. a there's one of those lists in the basic. So I we're, I we're really trying to think of other stuff. So I reread The Dark Muse. And then I reread the other stories in that volume. And then I reread one of the Kane novels. And then I went on a Whoa. deep internet dive. I went a little nuts and learned many things. So... So I have books tell that of me, are... Tell of me of your dark wisdoms, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have books in my life that are like comfort food, right? Mm. Like books that you reread, that you know the stories of, that you just really enjoyed at a certain point in your life, and you just read them again. I don't know if you're like that. I'm definitely like that. You're not? No? I, I am. No, I don't reread things. Reading is painful for me. Uh, I, read, but I, I put up with it to get to the good the good stuff. But maybe, I mean, do you have movies you rewatch or music you re-listen to frequently not, from your youth? Probably, uh, so probably the only, the big, like, comfort thing, like, I mean, I guess, in a way, like, just playing Dungeons and Dragons is, yeah. but I... Uh, but but also um, probably the only like comfort media that I have is a game called Kentucky Route Zero, um, nice. Which we should actually do an episode on at some point. We should. I think that'd be great. I like the title uh, of it. But already. yeah, I re I replay that one frequently. But other than that, in Hollow Knight. But other than that, I, I don't really revisit media very often. Well, so so as a and maybe it's a, a Gen X thing, but I you know we grew up watching Star Wars over and over, right? I saw Star Wars five times in the theater because there was no you know, VCR back then. I saw Star Trek two five times in the theater, you know, um, and there are novels and there are fantasy works of fantasy that I would watch over and over. And, and this went, this went on for a long time. So, you know, I definitely read Lord of the Rings every year for, for years from middle school through college. Um, but the, the works of Cain are, was some of that comfort food for me. And I had not revisited it in like 10 years. Um, mm. So you really opened the floodgate to, to how much I enjoyed that. And then as a, as a sort of, you know, more mature person, um, the writing seems less good to me. The characters, you know, a little less um, believable. And yet I still just loved every second of it. You know, there's problematic things that you noticed that you didn't notice before. Having said all that, I, I loved it. And um, so I learned two things. There is a documentary about him on oh. Vimeo. And it features a lot of talk about his, you know, the old writers who he, Peter Straub is in it and Ramsey Campbell is in it. And, you know, some horror greats from that time are in it to talk about him and his work and old friends and people I hadn't heard from. They interview his brothers and sisters. Um, he was the youngest, but all his three other brothers and sisters are still alive because he died at the age of 48 in 1995. Um, 
so it was just a big adventure for me. The other thing I learned is there's one collection of his called In a Lonely Place, uh, which is a collection of horror stories that I have never read because it's been out of print for so long and was prohibitively expensive. And a new edition Ooh. is coming out early next year. So I have Ooh, pre-ordered well, that's that exciting. from my that's, local bookstore. Is, yeah, so this was yeah. really, really nice for me. I have, I have other thoughts and I want to discuss these on another episode, but uh, perhaps I should discuss them with my therapist first because when I look at... <laughs> <laughs> when I look at all my comfort food stories, it's like Kane or Conan or um, uh, the Amber series by Roger Zelazny is one I reread during the pandemic. Uh, and these all feature a lot of like dark, immortal, amoral characters. And I'm wondering, mm. like, like are those that, you know, amoral and dark? Probably, maybe they are the first words you think of when you think of John. So maybe, uh, maybe... <laughs> Maybe I'm learning something about myself here, how I work out stuff. So. I mean, how long do we have to discuss Jungian <laughs> psychology? That's the real question, right? Yeah, um, exactly. But, you know, there's uh, Arthur C. Clarke once misquoted um, C.S. Lewis as saying uh, the only ones opposed to escapism uh, are on in the role of jailer, right? Right. And I think similar with power fantasy, right? Yeah. You know, the only... Only those uh, uh, that are opposed to power fantasies are the ones who have power and wish to keep it from others. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, with with vacationing and like the dark amoral stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think it. Uh, I think if anything, um, it probably just uh, sort of um, makes that bitter flavor really sing uh, when you are such a, a lovely person, John. <laughs> I mean, Robert Crumb once argued that like his his work may be transgressive, but what would he be like as a person if he didn't sort of get it out? You know what I mean? Um, I'm not sure. You know, I, I have mixed feelings about that thought, but but I will go as far to say as we all have some sort of darkness in in us, and I think maybe reading fantasy novels isn't the worst way to work that out. So. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and, and yeah, it's it's like like any kind of art. It's it is uh, thoughts of things are not the same as the things themselves. It's yes, uh, it's fine. Exactly. Uh, so anyway, it was a yeah. it was a it was a really fun week for me to like think about this author that I loved as a kid and have am sort of rediscovering. So we need to do more of this. <laughs> Yes, I agree. I'm really having fun, and I uh, just rereading these two favorite stories. So let me give you a little a little uh, history of me. I think I first ran afoul of Lord Dunsany um, when I first started getting into the OSR and heard about the Appendix N. Yes. Um, so, uh, it, and there was actually a tremendous podcast called the appendix and book club podcast. Right. Uh, and it's, it's mostly, it's, it's run by these two, um, sort of well-known judges, uh, from the DCC like judges guild. Mm -hmm. Um, so they have a lot of role-playing experience and are kind of like revisiting all of these paperback classics from the seventies. It's really cool stuff. And then, so I was just kind of reading ahead at, and I was you know, I don't enjoy accumulating books uh, for the most part, but the ones that were in the public domain and freely available, I was like, yeah, let's check this out. Mm -hmm. uh, and I absolutely fell head over heels for uh, Lord Dunsany. And and yeah, I, I, I just feel like he, in general, more than any other, um, more than any other, uh, a writer in the appendix and goes straight for the mythic fairy tale. Yes. Like he is not messing around. He is not like a scientific monster manual. Here are the breeding habits of a black no. dragon kind of guy. He is just like, Hey, this is a story. We all just need to be wrapped up in the spell of it. And we'll actually just break the fourth wall during the thing to like, kind of like defuse the, or decharge the any kind of tension that's in the story. Yeah, uh, in a wonderful way, though. It's it's like it feels like you're you're being read to by I don't know, like your mom or something like that. It's, it's very comforting. so interesting. Now, so when did these stories come out? Roughly, was it late? So yeah, mm -hmm. so the Book of Wonder, um, which which has the Quest of the Queen's Tears in it, came out in 1912. Okay, so this is. 15, 20 years before we run into Lovecraft and Howard, right? So this is, this yes. predates them. And, and 20 years before The Hobbit, roughly. And 
Yes, and in fact, it's just, if anything, Dunsany is remembered better for inspiring H.P. Lovecraft and inspiring um, a young J.R.R. Tolkien. Right. Uh, and I think you can really see the influence, especially in the the dream cycle stories from from Lovecraft yes. and the earlier, you know, unfinished tales of of Tolkien. Like you can, it is just them doing a. A, a bad impression of Lord Dunsany, which is <laughs> well, I don't know. I, 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 I agree with the bad part, but yes. Like, <laughs> um, and I want to say one thing because I think there is a certain mindset before we get to into the. I I can I made notes in in the story of the Fortress Unvanquish, Unvanquishable, like oh that's where Tolkien got this and that's where Tolkien got that. Like yes. there's a couple of things in there that are clearly like Shelob is in the story and this you know mm-hmm. it's a spider mm-hmm. creature he has to defeat and it's you know uh, the the influence. So there is a school of thought and I and I do not subscribe to it that says you know to get a good story you should go backwards to the original and that'll be the best part of it. Right. Like I remember there's, right. there's this, and I hope it's not still in print. And so I'm going to trash something. Kyle and I have a, have a, have an agreement not to trash stuff, but here I go. I do not enjoy the, the sort of elitist editorial attitude of the comics journal by Fantagraphics books. Um, I, cause you read things in there like, Oh, I used to like, um, you know, Bloom County until I saw the influences of Bloom County. And now I think it's just a ripoff and I enjoy those other original influences better. I think that kind of thinking is ridiculous, right? So, so saying you like Lord Dunsany is not saying, and and finding where Tolkien or Lovecraft got some of their ideas from this older work is not saying that that does not invalidate those works. And in fact, having read both, I still like Tolkien more than Lord Dunsany. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's, 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 he's doing a completely different thing by the time his, I mean, they both, they both moved further and further away from the Dunsanian right. um, uh, roots of it. But yes. it is, I like, I, and I'm mostly, when, when it comes to Tolkien, I am mostly talking about like a bunch of stuff that wasn't published until well after yeah. he was dead. The yeah. stuff he was writing before and after World War One around that time is like strong. Like Tolkien yes. had metal dragons, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, the, the dragons were essentially like the tanks of Morgoth's army. And yep. That idea is just is just lifted wholesale from Dunsany. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, and that doesn't make it the story bad or immature or anything. Uh, but it does. You can you can kind of de- detect uh, the 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 kind of untransformed ingredients quite strongly. Yeah. Uh, in some of those early works, and and the reason his later work is better than his early work is he takes that influence and makes it his own, and that's why it's yes. really enjoyable. And he um, combines it. He combines it with other with other things too. Like he is he is combining more ingredients than just like the one author he was super into at the time. Right. And I think Kyle and I have probably said it a dozen times, and we'll say it a dozen more. But uh, all work is a collection of the author's influences in one way or another, <laughs> whether they're overt or subtle, uh, is really the only question. So, um, you know. We'll 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 make yes. that. Yeah. It's a thank thank you thank you for calling me out on my. On my on my usage of the word bad impression, <laughs> uh, but I mean you know, and for love, this is this is this is a cut bit if ever there was one. You know, Lovecraft <laughs> is I don't I don't think his writing is very good. I think he I know is that it, we're, we're going to get canceled by doing, old people for a change. Yeah, get, that, but I agree. Like it. I don't uh, reread Lovecraft, he, but yeah. He is he is like reinterpreting Dunsany through the lens of like Edgar Allan Poe's language. Yeah. Um, but his like the things that scare him are interesting and idiosyncratic yes. and like the uh, there's a lot of cool stuff that are in those stories but i find the writing itself to not be the best part of it and that's 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 my feeling on that versus dunsany's prose or dunsany's prose are just delicious it's to me delightful. in a way that yeah yeah we should yeah. get we should talk about these stories and maybe summarize them a little more but having sort of set the stage for him do you want to just introduce him as a person briefly or do you want to do that at the end I yeah no I think uh I think so so yeah he uh he was actually um <laughs> he was actually uh, uh a a an Anglo-Irish lord uh so he was nobility in Ireland yeah um 
and uh, yeah, kind of like really his 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 mother was the co- cousin of Sir uh, Richard Burton, which we discovered right before recording. Right, uh, who is famous probably in literary circles for translating what is now known as Thousand and One Arabian Nights. Yes. Um, and, and doing lots of other things for the crown that we're probably we don't want to know about. Yeah. Here. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, kind of like this reads like somebody who has spent a lot of time in a castle reading books and thinking about things uh, in a culture that is steeped in um, poetry and language and lore. And, uh, and I think that that comes across very strongly here, uh, in, in these, in these books, um, which is, which is why I have this whole thing. But so let's start our discussion by talking about the quest for the queen's tear or the quest of the queen's tears. Yeah. It is a wonderful little story. It's very short. You could hold your breath and it's over. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just in and out. Uh, but there's like so many, he 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 basically builds a small star jammer campaign or spell jammer campaign <laughs> in like you know three and a half paragraphs. Yeah, you know that's those. not the first thing that came to mind, but let's, <laughs> let's right? go. Oh yeah, so the, we're gonna have a fun time talking about this. Yeah, um, but very very uh, uh, briefly to summarize the whole story. Um, is there is the queen of the wood who is 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 just refuses to lo- fall in love with any suitors and the suitors are like just send us on a dangerous quest so you can fall in love with us and she's like no nah, i'm not really going to do that uh and then finally she kind of gets talked into making a quest which uh for reference in histories and song would be called forevermore the quest of the queen's tears yes. and you would have to make her cry that was your that was your thing you would have to make her weep in some way uh and move her heart and she is this kind of like stoic individual that is like incapable of any kind of like love or or passion or anything like this yeah can i to summarize can i read my favorite bit from that intro really quick because i enjoyed it so much so this the she and this is the queen. She should have thrown her glove, they said, into some lion's den. She should have asked for a score of venomous heads of serpents or demanded the death of any notable dragon or sent them all on some deadly quest. But she could not love them. This it was unheard of and had no parallel in the annals of romance. I just love that bit. Right. And there is a strong hint of breaking that fourth wall and just going like, hey, you've heard a lot of fairy stories. The characters in uh, in this story know their characters in a story. Yeah. And and there's this one that's subverting the trope and that is causing social upheaval. Right. Uh, it's very, very... Uh, 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 it's it's got a strong whiff of t- Terry Pratchett. Uh, yes, yeah, so, or uh, Alice in Wonderland or first. something, where everybody's behaving like they're playing a part, and they know their part, and somebody's not playing along. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and that and that is part of the fun. That is part of the you know being told a story for children aspect to this. Um, so uh, there is this guy. Um, he is a a a a, a king of like seven different countries who is in the disguise, uh, a thin disguise as a bard. And his name is um, Acheronian and Acheronian. Yes. Acheronian uh, decides that he wants to, he wants to win this competition. He wants to move the queen's heart uh, to tears. Um, and so he is going to go uh, uh, make a potion from the tears of the gladsome beast and when somebody drinks a potion from the tears of the gladsome beast, they can move anyone to tears of joy uh, through song so long as that potion is still in effect. And um, so he he finds a buddy of his to, so his plan is he's going to play the harp to distract the gladsome beast and keep the gladsome beast from killing him. And yep. then a buddy of his is going to sneak up from behind and stab the monster. And that's how they will get these tears. Yes. Um, and then he goes back to he does all this, and he goes back to uh, the uh, well, yeah. There's one and great plays bit though. Song and there's one bit you've skipped over, which is one way to do it is they have to um, engage the help of the old man who looks after Fairyland. Yes. Well, I was I was just doing the summary. I wasn't Sorry, really I, there's because there's a ton of great details in this that yes. I am 
absolutely not going to skip over it. Don't you worry. Um, so he goes back, he goes back and plays the song. And uh, yeah, I, I guess uh, I don't want to spoil the end because I think the last line of the story uh, is great. Uh, it's, it is. It's and so, I struggle really with what we're going to talk about it. without talking about that line because it's so great. Well, let's just, let's just, let's build up to it. Okay. So yeah, we've already talked about some of the, we, so you've already read your quotation yes. uh, of, of the beginning of that. And I would like to pitch this to you. Okay. All right. Pitch, and this is kind of like what this is. This is, this is what my bit at the beginning was really setting up. Uh, is uh, there, I think that this specific kind of, there's there's sort of, you could read this in sort of like a, a serious, sober storyteller's voice, or you could read it with a strong Irish kind of like BSing accent. Yeah. And it brings, I think it brings out a flavor that is that is there. So she should have thrown her glove, they said, into the lion's den. She should have asked for a score of venomous heads from the serpents or demanded the death of any notable dragon or sent them all on some deadly quest. That, but that, um, but that she could not love them. It was unheard of. It had no parallel in the annals, in, in the annals of romance, right? Like that is, yeah. there is this sort of like somebody is like at the fire looking at a bunch of children and really getting worked up over this, that I, I think that is the tone of this story. And that is, so that is my suggestion to everybody is just like, you know, That's listen, fantastic. listen to some Irish, uh, some Irish storytellers I, and then come back to this. Well, I'll do a modern day, a quote unquote, unquote modern day reference and I'll drag in Tolkien. There's a wonderful scene in the film adaption of Lord of the Rings in the first one where Bilbo is telling scary stories to the kids during his big party. Yes. And that is the same feel. Like he's telling the story. It happened. It was very real to him, but at the same time, he's playing it up like whether they were going to squash us or, you know, you know, whatever. Um, and it was so wonderful. And I get that same sort of retelling vibe here. I think that's what, kind of what you're saying. Yes. 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 There is, there is this, there is just this joy and revelry in the telling of stories to children uh, that I think really is important for kind of understanding what's going on here. And also like as, as far as the gaming side of it is concerned, like I really enjoy throwing in asides and sarcastic, you know, genre aware comments in my GMing. Yeah. And, and so like, I, you know, that I think really has a, um, you know, really has a place at the game table as well. It's not, it doesn't just belong here where it's all pre-scripted. I think that kind of stuff really helps to keep everybody involved and, and kind of like, you know, nudging people and, and, and we, we can all enjoy the fact that we are playing, Dungeons and Dragons together, you know what I mean? Uh, some other wonderful highlights are, um, and, and the sort of gameable bit here is how they have to uh, get the tears, right? They're, they basically go on mm -hmm. an adventure. I think what makes this so wonderfully gameable is there's an adventure, it's a clear quest with clear creatures they have to run into and um, that they have to... Um, you know, engage in. So I love that part, but there's just some just wonderful bits um, about fairyland and, um, you know, there's this thing, and this is very Lovecraftian, like, like the, the, they go to see someone and he has a parlor and it's the Starward parlor. And he would tell them tales of space and they told him yes. about their perilous quest. So there's, there's this sort of uh, surreal uh, element to it that I also really enjoyed. And his front porch, uh, there's not even a step off of his front porch. There's no path because that's where the Southern Cross is. Like Fairyland, the guy who watches over Fairyland uh, is is in space. Like the, yeah. it's like it, this is this is where the stars are, and the stars are where the wind comes from. And yeah. it's just the, like the wind what? blew bleak from the stars. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. They, you know, they made their way to the old man who looks after Fairyland. Um, on pathways sheared from space. And it's just like all of this just wonderful language and playfulness with um, kind of like the scientific realities that Dunsany himself would have been well aware of. Yes. And he's just he's like, no, all of your science is now, I can just drag that straight back into fantasy. 
that belongs to me now. I have appropriated your images of space and, and this is where it belongs. Yeah. Yes. But there's this, uh, there's this great bit about, so that, yeah, I love this and I kind of wish there was an easier way to set this up in games where you have, you, you present. So the, the quest is to get the queen to cry. That is the quest. The way that uh, Acheronian chooses to do this is to get a potion by, you know, taking the tears of the gladsome beast, right? Um, So he has invented this means of solving his problem. Yes. And I think too often, like, those those kinds of means are difficult to make transparent. Those options for solving that one problem are too difficult to make transparent to players. So oftentimes we will have like some kind of quest giver say like, Hey, the queen needs to cry, go to the gladsome beast rather than that being the idea uh, uh, from the players themselves. Just like, Oh, I think we can do this. Right. Like that's, that's something that could happen really easily in a game like swords without master but it's in it's it is that is sort of um, not not as easy to bring up in well, a in a in a game like because in this sense it's prescriptive and it and it robs the players of agency which I think is something yeah. we really value in role playing games and we don't want to dictate what they have to do um, you know you could do it by giving them clues you know like right. the part that could that you could give out is the gladsome beast has the tears that will help you make the potion you want to make. Um, and then it's not, it feels less prescriptive because then they just have to go get them from the uh, um, Gladsome Beast. But but that leaves out a bulk of this story, but but that's still okay. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I you mean, can I set up sort of Jen- the middle, like, this is what needs to happen. And this is a way you could solve it. Um, but I'm not going to tell you how to get that from the Gladsome Beast. You've got to figure that yes. out on your own. Yeah, and also you, what you could do is like dump like two other options on them for ways to get people to cry, yeah. you know, uh, or you know, like magical means and things like that. So just like have them roll on a rumor table once you oh, set nice. up the the quest, right? So, but that you know that because it's a good situation that is solved with you know if if Acheronian is a player character that is solved with player agency yes. here because uh, that he's like oh here's my problem so here's my solution which is a it's a, an entirely different problem but here's my plan for that and and so on and so forth or you could have him have failed right here's what Acheronian yeah. did he tried to do these steps it is this story that we've just read you have to accomplish the same task but but you've got to figure out how to do it on your own. Right. Yes. Uh, and yeah. they, but there's, so the gladsome beast himself is uh, yeah, I'm going to, I got to, I want to read this bit about the, uh, so there's the, they, they seem to, so there's the old man who looks after fairyland lives on this kind of like asteroid or something. Yes. Yeah. Or, or like flat plane uh, that's floating in space, like, like a spell jammer city. Uh, and on the underneath of that frisbee disc that he lives on is where the gladsome beast is. He, it's called the underneath, and they actually like have to like look upside down and under over the edge of the side yeah. of this land in order to like see where the gladsome beast is. Mm-hmm. It's very very strange. Um, but uh, so they so they go here, and uh, there's there's this wonderful line that kind of introduces the situation, right? So it's, it's it is known. How the lark in its zenith, children at play out of doors, good witches and jolly old parents have been compared, how aptly, with this very same gladsome beast. Only one crab he has, if I may use slang for a moment to keep myself perfectly clear. Only one drawback, and that is that in its gladness of its heart, he spoils the cabbages of the old (laughs) man who looks after fairyland. And of course, that. he eats men, right? Like there is, and of course, he eats men. Like as yeah, an he aside, he also eats people. Like, but that's not as bad. Like the the real the real sticky wicket here is is that the gladness of his heart spoils the cabbages. Yeah, the old man that's who looks the... after Fairyland is cranky, and he really yeah. like his cabbages seems to be the only thing he cares for, which is pretty amazing. It is, yeah. He looks, he looks after Fairyland, but he seems to really be mostly concerned with his cabbages that that keep getting spoiled by the gladness of the beast. You know, so. the other bit I love here, and I don't, I don't know that this is gameable, but like I think of a bard, right? Because I'm not like a big bard person. Mm. But what I love here is, 
so when I think of a bard, I think of you have to sing songs and people always do fun. I had a guy who had his bard be a rapper and he like wrote down the track list for his mm-hmm. his rap album. But what they do here is they don't like sing the song or have the lyrics of the song. They just say it was a sad song and this is what the song told of. And I got to say, like all the little bits of that, I thought were just glorious and I love them. Like, yeah, it was, it's, it's not unlike, um, Tenacious D's The Greatest Song in the World. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. It's like, this isn't it. This is just a tribute. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's, it was, uh, but it, but also that, that in and of itself was quite moving. It was. Um, he, he sang of the, the malignity of time. Uh, yes. he sang of autumn and of passing away. And what was this last one that I love so much? Uh, desperately chanted on he told of the glad unnoticed things men see and do not see again of sunlight beheld unheeded on faces now withered away like whoa like that is heavy and also amazing it is it is just like the 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 enjoyment of language and just kind of reverie in spoken word here is something that i i just don't there aren't as many uh, authors that I feel like pull it off quite as well as Dunsany does in my reckoning. No. And um, I, you know, we were talking about sort of my, my, um, my sort of love of the dark story. I, I really only sort of have two poles of narrative that really excites me. Like I'll, I'll put an analogy in music. Like, like mm. I'm not much for the mid tempo power ballad. Right. I am. I like like super sickly sweet, really earnest music, or I like, like super fuzzy punk rock that is that is dark to the core like i like that middle ground isn't a isn't a fun space for me and i feel like like dunsany in a way is the other end of that like like it is so romantic and beautiful that that you could you could look at it ironically and i think that works i also just enjoy the romance of his language so much like it's just a pleasure you know what i mean yeah, and 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 to your point about the bard thing is uh, Dunsany makes this. He makes a couple of of, of different uh, references to this. Um, he said, uh, you know, mis- he 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 says. So the people who are like really ticked off at the queen for not taking a suitor, it's like this is not the way they said to treat princes in their splendor and mysterious troubadours concealing kingly names, right? Yeah. And in fact, Acheronion is one such troubadour that is actually a king. And yeah. so this is probably a reference to the Anglo-Saxon poem. Um, uh, Sir Orpheo, which is a retelling of that. the Greek tale of Orpheus and Eurydice. Eurydice. Yep. Um, so yeah, like, and and in this, it's you know, Orf- Sir Orpheo is walking around as a bard, even though he is a king of his own land, and that's just what you did back then. Uh, you you to to kind of walk amongst the regular folks. Uh, so yeah, it, it, I don't yeah I don't know of any other reference that could be. Uh, but it seems very specific to me. <laughs> well, there is a there is, in, and I'm not a scholar of any of this, but there is also a great um, old Irish story about uh, a poet who who like like a war is going to be fought, and there's some invaders coming to Ireland, and instead of and if I can find the reference, I'll put it in the show notes, though I think it's unlikely. Uh, instead of a battle between swordsmen, they each pick their best poet. And they sing songs to each other, and the winner, um, and the winner of that battle, their side wins. And I think there's, like, I always, like I said, I I don't love bards because I think they're they're trying to capture this idea, which I think is wonderful of music as magic. Um, mm-hmm. And I just think the way it's executed in D and D is not great, but but I love that idea that magic is wrapped around music and the performance of music and history and lore. It's all it's all wrapped into music, and I just love that. And that is, you know, that is, um, that is also, we see strongly inflected in Tolkien as well, right? Yes. Like music is magic. It is like, you know, when, when Sam is just like, he gets to Lothlorien and he's just like, Hey, where's all the elf magic? Yeah. And Galadriel is just like, are you kidding me? Like we are <laughs> singing like all the time. Did you not notice? Did you not hear that? And he just, he wasn't clocking it. To, yeah. Cause, exactly. cause when Bilbo says all that stuff, it, it doesn't cast a spell. Uh, but you know, and you know, with they singing the bath time song, Yes. kept the Nazgul away and like all this kind of stuff, yeah. like, you know, singing and magic and mirth 
and you know singing sorrow at, at proper times has a strong um you know has a strong effect on on the world around it and can indeed like summon all the kinds of uh stuff you know the uh the ring poem is not a description of Sauron's, you know, rule for the one ring. That is sort of the program code itself. Like this is a fact that he wrote into the universe with this specific language, use of language that's on the ring. Yeah. Um, Okay. So Uh, let's um, uh, let's, just on a program note. So we're 40 minutes in and we haven't talked about the long story. Should we talk? Should we do the end of this story or do you want to split them up? I think, uh, I don't know. I think I think we've actually said everything we want to about this. Like, I don't know yeah. that we need to unpack the ending. I think it stands on its own. It doesn't need us to bloviate on it. Uh, so yeah, go read the quest for the queen's tears. Yeah, the and, ending and is, is get to that last and, sentence yeah. and feel the way you're going to feel about it. It has know? the similar feeling. I think I think so. When when we read the Dark Muse, you said we should read the quest for the queen's tears, and yes. I think the reason is because they both end in a wonderful sort of not ambiguous suggestive way but that isn't completely literal and and obvious you know what i mean and both stories are getting uh both stories are are about creating art yes with the use of inviting substances yes (laughs) (laughs) you know that's what it was i was just like "Ooh, what's a what's a non-horror non- spousal abuse version of this story <laughs> yeah it's yeah. the quest for the queen's yeah. tears but it is still kind of like you know centered around kind of um it's it's very much centered around kind of the emotions of of this queen and, and, and stuff like that so yeah okay here's okay so here's where i'm at right now is like i don't really want to give the the fortress unvanquishable save for sacknoth short shrift uh yeah. So do you want to do that next week? And we could, because there's still a couple of things that I'd like to say about uh, uh, Quest for the Queen's Tears. So we could, we could maybe like save, save the uh, Fortress Unvanquishable um, for, for my next pick and, and do a, a story that you pick for, for, for next episode. I uh, just, you know, folks for next week, we're going to read another short story. We're going to stick with, um, or I, for my pick, I'm going to stick with 70s and 80s giants that maybe um, you're not aware of. This is going to be a story by my one of my other favorite authors, Roger Zelazny. He's most famous for writing the Amber novels. Um, fortunately, I can't convince Kyle to read an entire 10 novel series. So we've settled <laughs> on a short story called The Last Defender of Camelot. And that's also the name of the collection. Um so The Last Even- Defender of Camelot by Roger Zelazny. I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can find it. And we're going to read that and talk about it in uh, two weeks. And just to just to really sweeten the pot for you to actually read this story, I, I'm seeing here right on, uh, on, on God's own Wikipedia, the story was also the basis of a 1986 episode of The Twilight Zone. So what? there you go. Oh, I didn't uh, even know that. Yeah, cool. it's, we're all learning stuff today uh uh fantastic uh this is this is great fun um okay so where were there any other general programming notes that you wanted to talk about i think that's it okay so let's let's get back to our discussion of the the gladson beast then uh or sorry the um the quest for the queen's tears so the the big thing that jumped out to me and i have found myself in the unenviable position of the there there is a half price books location on the north side of columbus and it has the best rpg collection i have ever seen it's terrible because origins is here it's like there there's like a strong wargaming and and board gaming and, and RPG community here. So I picked up the and they do what I do all the time, right? It's which is buy way too many RPGs and then they schluff them off at the used bookstore. Yeah. So just yesterday I purchased a copy of King Arthur's Pendragon <laughs> or King Arthur's oh, Pendragon. Good. Which which edition? Uh it, I think it's the first one. It was like in two thousand five or something like that. Well, so, the, now is it if it's the Greg Stafford one? Like, he's been working on this since the '80s, and okay. I have an edition from the late '80s, which is the third edition that I love. But okay. he, but he kept working on it until he died. And in fact, maybe the seventh edition came out, and and that was with his influence. But it's the first one to be published since Greg Stafford died. I could Greg Stafford, by the way, just as an aside, huge presence at 
um, Chaosium, which mm. is the company that brought us Call of Cthulhu. Uh, Sandy Peterson actually wrote Call of Cthulhu, but Greg Greg Stafford was was sort of the other great half of that of that company. Sorry to digress. That's okay. No, so this was apparently the fifth edition of this game. So oh, that's uh, so good. It's good. It's all good. I mean, the whole game because he wrote that. Like he never. This is like his his um his RPG like like statement. He he. All editions are written, except for the last one, by Greg Stafford. Like he, he just never felt he got that game quite right, and he just kept working away at it. It's amazing, that's marvelous. Yeah, I really. That's what. That is one of my big white whale dreams is to run a lengthy campaign of Arthur Pendragon. Um, yeah, because it's got it's got this wonderful setup where you are doing cool quests for King Arthur. Um, yeah. It's got kind of like mechan- uh, uh, mechanics for how you, one is to behave as a knight. And then you yeah. go winter at home and, and, and start a family and your heirs take over for you in service of the realm. And like there's all it has these like discrete phases that match that that are very like closely emulating the literature of, you know, chivalric um, uh, fantasy. And yeah. I think there is a strong, you know, Arthurian, you know, this could be a a piece of this could easily be a setup for a a, a quest that you would do in Pendragon. Yeah. And absolutely absolutely. Because it's very romance, both both romantic small R and romantic big R, you know, this quest. Uh, by the way, as another aside, thing we're thing we're gonna talk about in the future, I have not yet watched the Green Knight. And you and I are going to watch that and talk about it. Ooh, I love that film. We are going to. Okay, it's it's on. Not for next week, but it's on the list. I love it. Oh, God. I love that movie so much. I, I like his other movies. I think he's a great filmmaker. And I, I want to. I'm, I'm excited to, to see this one. I haven't watched it. It is, it is, it is tonally, it's a bit of a slog, uh, but it's- I love the, that. I gotta be honest. Great. It's a, it's a very deliberately paced film, I'll say. This is the man who likes Star Trek, the motion picture. Talk oh, about you're a right. slog. Like, I, <laughs> you don't, yes, you, no. don't, you don't mind getting caught in the world. If, yeah. If you give me a good atmosphere, you can have me for three hours. I don't care if nothing happens. This so. is, yeah. Then okay. the Green Knight is absolutely yeah. your movie. I adore yeah. that film. Um, but yeah, so, so yeah, but I think, you know, the, the quest for it is, it is very much based in this idea that this is something that like, you know, um, not Perseus, is it? Who's the guy who finds the Holy Grail? Is it Perseus? Percival. Percival. Yeah, Percival. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so th- that is absolutely like something he would do on, on being a knight errant, you would fall into this kind of situation and you're like, Oh, I'm, I'm actually looking for like a super magical wife lady anyway. Yes. So like, this is, this sounds like, this sounds like a job for Superman and, yeah. uh, you know, that, and then off you go to kind of like solve this problem that at the end of it is about, um, it is about doing something for other royalty, but. It, you have to kind of go through this, you know, this whole there and back again adventure and, and where a giant monster is involved. Like this is such yes. a classic formula. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I like that. There's first of all, there's multiple characters, right? Cause it's not just the bard. He's got his trusty friend who, who's, who's dynamite with a spear and he yeah. needs him. So there's that sort of adventure, like that multi-character adventure thing, which I think is important to stories. Like, again, this is, you know, when we were talking about our original appendix end episode, this is why I brought up Star Trek, right? Because yeah. it's a, it's a group activity. And I think when you're thinking of uh, RPGing stories, group activity is really important and less common in a lot of our myths, you know, Gilgamesh has his pal, but like, like there's not, there's rarely a mythic story with like six characters that interact and each have distinct personalities, you know, yeah. that's just not a thing. So, so finding stories that have more than just a single protagonist is always good when you're looking for influences. Yeah. And his, so. his good buddy is like a subject of his, uh, yes. like on, on the spear guard or something like that. Uh, and, and it's like specifically like, Oh God, there's a great line. Let me, let me see where, okay, 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 okay. Uh, so he sought out, therefore, a humble knightly man who cared not for the beauty of Sylvia, Queen of the Woods, but had found a woodland maiden of his own once long ago in summer. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it's like, just what? like, I need some guy who can kick ass, but is like already has a lady at home. He's not going to steal my girlfriend. Yeah. 
So I just thought that was so funny. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that is funny, and um, I, I do have another thought about this. And in, in one one way, this feels so much older than the time, right? Mm. So, what's interesting about this is it's a story written long ago because other stories published in 1912. Just to to throw a couple out there, right? Um, uh, Princess, the of uh, Death in Venice by Thomas Mann came out in 1912. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw came out in 1912. Um, so, it, you know. Like mystery novels started to come out in 19... Like like Zane Grey, Writers of the Purple Sage, which is a legendary Western, right? If you're going to read one Western, like that's the one to read. That's 1912. So so this story feels, e- even though it's it's more than 100 years old, it still feels way older than its time. And it, it lacks conventions that we expect. And this is yeah. true of, of Lovecraft too, but like there's no dialogue, right? There's yeah. just things are related. There's no dialogue. Also, nobody, and this is part of what makes it great, you don't see anybody's inner life, right? Nobody There's no would write interiority a to any of these characters. Yes. Nobody would write a story today. Even Tolkien provides you, at least with hints of people's inner lives, in his huge mythic fantasy. Like, And, so, and those are some of my favorite moments, right? Like, like, even if he's just hinting at it, like they're about to leave on the quest and, you know, you know, Aragorn stood alone and nobody could guess what was going through his mind right now, at least hinting that there's an inner life and that these are human beings with with unique dispositions. And there's none of that here, which isn't a criticism. It's just fascinating to read when you're so used to reading a modern story where they're like, so and so was thinking this and so and so was thinking that. And, you know, none that of that is, is I think that is one of the things that a makes this very accessible to children because it's about yes. like concrete things that people are doing and B. Yep. Um, one of the reasons why I think it's so appropriate for application to gaming, because right. you are oftentimes not really, you are trying to embody the interiority uh, of your NPCs as a GM, but you're never saying like, she feels sad. You know, you said that right. she feels sad. You would say like, you know, she pouts or, or um, you roll an insight check to see if you can discern, you know, like that kind of, that kind of stuff. Oftentimes you're not narrating the interior lives of the, yes. of the, of the NPCs. I think that's such an yep. interesting point. Um, but just, just to put a fine point on it also, like the two fisted uh, sci-fi action romp, um, a princess of Mars, the first John Carter story by Edgar Rice Burroughs was also published in, um, in, in 1912. So yeah, like, what, this I mean, is... perfect. Like talk about two more different stories, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's like uh, that are both tackling the same imagery, but from very different directions. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, to to your point about the kind of archaic nature of the writing, uh, uh, Dunsany was once asked, like, where he got his his style of, of writing. And he said mm-hmm. just he just said, like, I, I really only think there's one uh, uh, one style of writing worth reading. And that is the King James Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that is that is why it kind of feels so overwrought. But I think. We had talked about this before we went on the air. Um, I I think there is a strong hint of uh, uh, Sir uh, uh, Sir Richard Burton um, yes. on, on this. I think there is a strong tone of you know the the kind of like reappropriated Arabian stories as translated into English. I think there's a there's a strong hint of that kind of language that we find here um, as well. So, but and it goes, just, yeah, it is, it is a deliberately archaic style of writing. And it, and it feels very much like a, like a fireside storytelling session, like mm-hmm. you were saying earlier. And I think that's super important and, and, and maybe picked up from Arabian nights too, is that we're, it, it's almost, I love that you read them aloud and we read our bits aloud. Cause it's almost like having heard that, that, that seems way more natural to, yeah. to have this story read to you than to read it. Yeah. And I think I think that is especially how so uh, there's there's the the book of wonder from which this comes is I think it is it is deliberately made and and it was sold and marketed as a children's book. Uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, the uh, sort of Wellerin and other tales um, from the other story we were going to talk about today, but then yes. ran too long. Uh, that is kind of more for like you know the 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 adults who know what's up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that one seems a bit more sober uh, and not not quite as um, campy, 
mm-hmm. you know, uh, but, but, but yeah, what else, what else jumps out? But I, I feel like we've, we've covered some really good ground, but yeah. Any... yeah no, I, I like this story and it, and a story like this to me is like a breath of fresh air. Um, right. Yeah, it's just especially, a very innocent... especially all of that after all that uh, Wagner you've been reading. This yeah. has to be <laughs> like a real palate cleanser. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So yeah, I uh, I thought it was delightful, and I'm glad you suggested it. And remember, oh, but dolorous, dolorous are the ways of man. Few and fierce are his days, and the end trouble and vain, vain his endeavor. Book is a proud part of Roll For It Media. Be sure to check out our sister show, Roll For Topic, wherever fine podcasts are purveyed or on their website, gmdiscussions.com. And please leave us a five-star review on your podcasting app of choice. It really helps us out. You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Latino. My YouTube channel is Mapcro, and you can subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Mapcro. And you can follow John in your hearts. Our intro music today was a track called Sword of Light by Horse Lips from their 1976 album, The Book of Invasions. And our outro music is the song She Moved Through the Fair, by Elizabeth Fraser on vocals, backed by the band The Insects for the 2016 BBC television program The Living and the Dead. But stay tuned for some cut bitlets. All right. Yeah, we're solid gold. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, everyone. Uh, once, we didn't hit recording again, time to, to catch the mic- to catch microphone. The amazing humor. Yeah. <laughs> My comic genius remains unheard because it only happens before Kyle records. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah, that's 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 the story, and we're sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. His mother was cousin to Sir Richard Burton. That makes so much sense. Get out of here. Yeah, Richard Burton, the translator of Arabian Nights, or Richard Burton, the actor. Uh, let me check that. Translator of Arabian Nights. It is it is the Arabian Nights guy, yeah. Okay, which makes a lot of sense because there's I I think there's a strong uh, inflection of Arabian Nights on especially yes. the Fortress Unvanquishable, which uh, yeah. Well, yeah, and uh, and also only nerds like us would have to make that distinction. Other people are like, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, there is there is a uh, have you ever read um, Philip Jose's Farmer? Uh, River World? I have not. It's uh, that's one that eluded me. It seems like you're kind of uh, honestly like yeah. it's uh so basically all of humanity uh dies in an apocalypse and then aliens nice. resurrect Perfect. all of them across all uh-huh. of human history along the banks of this like infinitely twisty river world. Whoa. And like, yeah. And like, basically, uh, uh, there's like a caveman and Sir uh, Richard Burton and Mark Twain all like reinvent the steamboat and like figure out like what happened. Uh, yeah, it's that's amazing. It's incredible. I think, yeah, this, this is absolutely the kind of thing that you would love. Um, an aside on the Vimeo app, it doesn't record your location. So if you like, buy a video and download it like and then you hit play like two hours after watching the first half it like takes you back to the beginning like it has no logic to remember <laughs> like like wait is this 2022 like what is that is that... <laughs> 
YouTube tracks me so tight they remember where I am on a different device three days yeah, later. They like, are, yeah. Yes, YouTube, YouTube <laughs> is watching you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Just to, there's a, this will probably make it as a cut bit look, but there's just a bit of music trivia that I love. And it's one of my favorite scenes in the Lord of the Rings movies. I know we're not talking about Lord of the Rings today, but uh, there is a moment where after Gandalf dies, spoiler, Gandalf dies, (gasps) uh, spoiler, he comes back. Uh, But after he dies, they they go to Lothlorien in the movie and they are listening to the elves singing. And there's this ethereal voice singing this sad chant about the death of Gandalf. And, and one of the hobbits says to Legolas, like, what are they singing? And he says, I, you know, I haven't the heart to tell you, which is just a beautiful moment. But also that voice is a, is a singer, Elizabeth Frazier, who was in this band called the Cocteau Twins, mm. which is like my all time favorite band. So it's like, this great Tolkien story, this moment I love, and my favorite singer, like, all came together in this moment. And, like, like I heard it in the theater. I'm like, that's Elizabeth Frazier. You are kidding me. And, like, the whole thing came together. It was, uh, oh. Am I? Connection. Oh, I'm fine. Disconnected, reconnected. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll see if there's a hiccup or something like that. But I, we, yeah. should, we, so, should, anyway. we should put a track of hers into, the, into like, the ending or something or the beginning. Yeah, I uh, I can find I can find that song and and chop it up. I've got it as an MP3, and I can find that little bit. That, yeah, that that would be great because uh yeah I picked a, okay. I picked a, a, some Irish prog rock, but um we can <laughs> we can we can swap out. It was, it was two different songs by the same band, so we can we can swap that in. That'd be great. So yeah, so yeah, let's decide to to talk about it later. Let's let's capture your extra thoughts on uh, our extra thoughts for this story, and then. We can talk. And then actually, since we're in break mode, let's talk about what we want to do next. Okay. So that we can announce it during this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. What are your general general programs? What do you let's let's talk about it. Yeah. So I feel like there's a couple of these older. I don't want this to become the Appendix N book club. Right. Um, Because I think it's important that we get into different media. Yes. Like music and movies like we could listen to that hawkwind album about the bane of the black sword or we could you know there's all kinds of fun we could do crawl we could do the sword and the sorcerer we could do you know a modern fan maybe we could i've never watched jason momoa's conan the barbarian maybe it's terrible (laughs) we could watch it and talk about (laughs) right but there's i think there's more modern things we could we could tackle as gameable and storyable. So, so that's one thing, but there are a few older stories I kind of want to get out of the way. I, yeah. Two in mind. I think, and I don't, I don't think it bothers anybody. Honestly, uh, I have not heard anybody. Okay. I have not gotten any feedback. If anything, I think people like this more than what we were doing when we started the show. <laughs> I think so. Our best episode, our most popular episode by far is the appendix. End, yeah. So it, it's just, um, I would like to do some more modern stuff because I think it's important to talk about newer. I think so too. I, I absolutely agree. Um, Yeah. Amber was great. Well, Amber Dysos was amazing because it was the first, it was the first game without, with where the resolution mechanic was sort of like, you just decide what happens. But the way it worked is you had a, you had a ranking from, I think a one to a hundred in a skill. And like, if your sword play was, was a 47 and the other person's sword play was a 36, you just won. Yeah. But the interesting part was you narrate how that goes and you take turns narrating the outcome. Anyway. So I know, hold on. It's, I, I have another little digression because I just found okay. out about the style of war gaming called, let me, it's called, um, uh, let me look it up here. It's called the Chris Angle Matrix game. Okay. All right. So, uh, in, in 1992, this guy named Chris Angle came up with this way of playing war games that used no dice and no stats. And what? essentially, the thing that you would do is you would say what happens, and then you would give three reasons for why that thing happens on your turn. And so, okay. you, basically, you make your argument and you make three supporting arguments for it, and then that just becomes, oh wow! So it just becomes like this like negotiation game about like why you think these things happen, and there's like you know all kinds of back and forth with that. But it's like, gosh, that sounds like such a cool That's way to run a game. Oh man! Uh, so yeah. I I have been trying to get into more of these like indie RPG discords before 
uh, Elon Musk ruins Twitter. So <laughs> that's not a problem for you. But for me, I'm just like, oh, no, I have the icebergs melting. Like, I have to find dry land. <laughs> I know. I know. I felt Twitter was already terrible, but it I know that terrible. there are some people who use it for for good. Yeah. And uh, and I think the art community was pretty solid there. But anyway. Um, <laughs> that is so great. I got yeah, I think this is. I know. I just, I, I feel like, um, I feel like it's really uncool to take this. St- you can, we're still laughing about it. We enjoy it, but it's on some level we think it's chilling and engaging. And I think it's super uncool to like this stuff. And that's why we're friends. Yeah, so. exactly. Well, and, you know, back to our, one of the very first conversations we had on this podcast, um, mm-hmm. this isn't, this is not swords and sorcery, but the thing that makes it applicable is that earnestness. Like you are, yes. we do not, you know, if you enjoy this story, you, you are loving it with your full heart. And there is, yes. even though there's lots of like, there's lots of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We all know this is a fairy tale. And these are all kind mm-hmm. of like silly stories to tell to children. There is something undeniably beautiful and valuable about them. And that is, that is why I, I, I didn't. I'm surprised we had such a long conversation about a short story. I know. Like this, this is going to be the quick one. This, yeah, this is going to be the quick one. I think you could probably read this story in like 15 minutes, and here we were talking oh, yeah. about it for about an hour. <laughs> yeah, you know, the other thing is, um, yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But yes, there is a um, like it would be so easy to be ironic and like smirk and say snarky stuff about this story, and I'd much rather just enjoy it for what it is. So yeah. Cool. All right. I I will I will snip that out. But uh, there's just one more thing that I want to say about this before we go. Uh, I don't know if this is a cut bitler or whatever, but like there's this whole thing about like how they get to how they get to the the house of the old man who watches over fairyland, and um, he he passes muttering angrily about his cabbages for he did not love the ways of the gladsome beast and the two friend part of their separate ways. Space, new paragraph, nothing perceived them, but the ominous crow glutted overlong on the flesh of men. And it's like, whoa, chill out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That that tonal shift. Oh, and the next line is, the wind blew bleak from the stars. And it's like, (laughs) I'm sorry. I I thought we were having a good time. (laughs) 